Our first scripture reading this morning is from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3. As we're preaching through the Gospel of Mark, we've been reading in Ecclesiastes. Heather is going to come and read it for us. Heather, if you would. Ecclesiastes 3, 1 to 8. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. On one hand, Ecclesiastes 3 sounds like a pop song, and indeed, at one point in history, it was a pop song. Uh, There's sort of a surface level understanding of this passage. You could say, oh, there's a time for everything. But in the larger scope of Ecclesiastes, what the author is saying is that all things are in God's hands, that you do enter times for weeping and and times for joy. You do enter times where, where things are cast away and times where things are together. And really all things belong to God. All things come to us through his hands. Well, as I mentioned earlier, we are in a series in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we are, the, the Gospel of Mark is uh, a, a telling of Jesus' life, his work, his ministry, what he taught. And we are kind of in the last week of his life, which I'll explain more about in the sermon. Uh, we are in Mark chapter 12. And before, uh, before the sermon, we're going to read it together. Evelyn is going to come. You can follow along on the back middle of your, your bulletin as she reads for us. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came to him and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, he left no offspring. And the second took her and died and left no offspring, and the third likewise. And the seventh left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason that you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? 
For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. All right, we're going to take some time to reflect on this text together uh, from Mark chapter 12. Uh, a couple of years ago, I read the book Open by Andre Agassi. Maybe you've maybe read this book, heard of this book. It's an autobiography. To this day, it remains one of my favorite books. I love, love a good sports autobiography. Uh, in the book, though, he talks about one of the things that made him one of the great tennis players of all time. And it's this, when he was learning to play, his father taught him to hit the ball when the tennis ball was still rising after its first hop. So basically, he's learning to play the ball earlier as opposed to later. And what this did for Andre as he got older is it made him devastating as a returner. Because basically, if you think about it, the ball is getting back across the net faster and quicker than most players are used to. And it was possibly Agassi's greatest strength as a player was taking your best shot, your best serve, and returning it faster. He's widely regarded as probably the greatest return man of all time in, in men's tennis. In our text today, Jesus is playing the role of great return man or greatest return man. It doesn't matter who sort of steps into the ring with him, onto the court, onto the field. It might be a Pharisee or a Herodian or a Sadducee. He takes their best, most tricky question and volleys back scorchers at them. They, they think they're hitting winners against Jesus like, oh, this question, they're rubbing their hands. And Jesus crosses them up, leaves them befuddled. But it isn't just the wit and the debating prowess we see here in Jesus, but for what his questions and answers reveal about the kingdom of God. Jesus is not just a museum specimen simply to be admired. Ooh, look at him debate and then put him back on the shelf. Oh no, he's more than that. He's a living, breathing God man who will turn his gaze upon us before long. As we learn, he's not a dead God. He's not a God of those who have already died, but he is a living God with things to say to us. So we're gonna dive in. We're gonna talk about, there's sort of two stories here. There's this first story, we're gonna call it the things that belong to God. He's debating with these Herodians and Pharisees. And then secondly, we'll talk about the God of the living as he begins to engage the Sadducees. Now remember, if you've been here with us, this is the last week of Jesus' life. He's already entered Jerusalem to victorious shouts. He caused a big kerfuffle in the temple. Uh, He cursed a fig tree, and now for a couple days, he is busy teaching and answering questions from the religious establishment uh, who are kind of in an uproar. Jesus has managed to get everyone angry except the people. The people love him. I mean, right now, it's going to turn. Uh, But the authorities, they are all very grumpy, and so they're kind of coming to him, trying to take him down a notch, And the passage opens with these Pharisees and Herodians set to trap him in his talk. Now, if you're a church person, you're probably familiar with Pharisees. They're the most often mentioned group of religious leaders in Jesus' time. They were basically interested in very strict observance of the Old Testament law. They think, we're going to purify the nation through obedience, and then the Messiah will come, all all these sorts of things. That's the Pharisees. The Herodians we know less about. They were kind of loosely organized. Not a ton was written about them. But normally what their thing was is they were were political and religious enemies of the Pharisees because their main agenda was to advance the political and economic influence of Herod and Herod's family. So to be clear, these Herodians, not really a religious group, more of a political, a cultural force. 
So this coalition of Pharisees and Herodians, them coming together to ask Jesus a question, it's a strange marriage. I mean, maybe think of like the Canadian Cattlemen's Association with the National Council of Canadian Muslims and they're, they're banding together. It's like, I didn't think they had a lot in common, but what they do have in common, these Pharisees and the Herodians, not the, the cattlemen and, and, and the other ones, what they have in common is a fear about their power and position in Jewish society. See, Jesus is coming along. He's disrupting the status quo. They are interested in the status quo. The status quo is working for them. And so they come to Jesus, verse 14, with their best question. And the, the a best question, you might be aware, if you're trying to trap someone, is a question for which there is no good answer. You watch debates in the, the parliament or whatever. It's like you ask a question, and if they say yes, there's a problem, and if they say no, there's a different problem. But first, they lead with a little flattery. Oh, Jesus, you're so true. Oh, Jesus, you don't care what anyone says. Say something crazy. Oh, Jesus, you aren't swayed by appearances. They kind of, they're laying it on thick. And then they're like, oh, by the way, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Should we do that? Now, for modern Canadians, we're like, that doesn't feel like a gotcha question. Because for most of us, taxes are a very normal part of our lives. We pay them without too much thinking. Maybe if you're into political theory or maybe some late night in undergrad, you, you sat around and debated the legitimacy of taxes. But besides grumbling that they're too high, we mostly just kind of get on with things. You know, taxes are taxes, taxes and death. We have these sayings. We don't, we don't think about them too much. But that's not how ancient Jews treated them. It's a loaded question. Because if Jesus answers, yes, taxes are lawful, this is going to upset the people. The people hated taxes because the people hated being ruled by Rome. They hated being under the thumb. They hated that their taxes supported the regime that was ruling over them. I mean, imagine if Canada invaded like New Hampshire or something and we just started taxing them and, and, and the New Hampshireites, whatever they're called, and they're like, oh, my taxes are supporting this oppressive regime. We hate them. So if Jesus answers taxes are lawful, well, the people are going to be like, well, we don't, we don't like this guy anymore. Let's get rid of him. And then the leaders can kind of have their spot back. They can arrest Jesus. Now, on the other hand, if Jesus agrees with the people and the, the popular sentiment, yes, taxes are bad and you shouldn't pay them. Well, then the Pharisees and the Herodians, they're going to go scurrying off to Rome and be like, hey, Rome, have you heard about this guy? He's, he's fomenting, you know, insurrection, revolutionary talk, whatever. And then the Romans will get him. So it's a catch-22. If Jesus says yes, he loses the people. If he says no, then Rome is going to crack down on him. This group of conniving leaders, they think they've got him. They've hit their best serve. Jesus is on the ropes, or so it seems. Verse 15, Jesus knew they were hypocrites. What does it mean to be a hypocrite? It means to say one thing and do another. It means to be false. The reason these people are hypocrites is because they are asking a question for which they don't really care to know the answer. They are not interested in what Jesus thinks about taxes. They, are simply, they simply want to trap him. The question is about destroying his reputation one way or another, yes or no. Jesus calls for a denarius, that's a Roman coin. It's not usually carried by Jews, particularly those who hated Rome. There's actually this fun rabbit trail on the internet because Jesus is, maybe Jesus is actually pointing out their hypocrisy because they even possess such a coin. Uh, but anyways, it, it's a bit of a side trail. The denarius, though, had a picture of Caesar Augustus on it. Like, kind of like, you know, like the queen or now the, the king, maybe will eventually be on our coins. But it had an inscription on it which said, Son of the Divine, Son of God. And some of the Jews in this period actually viewed the coin itself as idolatrous. 
and blasphemous because the emperor is calling himself, you know, one of the gods or a son of the gods. But Jesus asks him, you know, look at this coin. They all knew it. But whose likeness, whose inscription on it? Of course, it's Caesar's. And in verse 17, the reply, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God's. Now, this means two things. I'm going to give you the surface meaning. We'll do that first. And then we're going to give you the deeper meaning. On the surface, this is a brilliant response because it means two things at the same time. A pro-Roman person would hear, render to Caesar what's Caesar, and they think, oh, that means that the Jews should pay their taxes and be happy about it. The coin belongs to Caesar, and therefore the Jews should give that coin back. But an anti-Roman person would hear Jesus' response and conclude, well, nothing belongs to Caesar. He's an, he's an interloper. He's a, he's a usurper of real power. Therefore, we don't have to pay the tax. These Jews think they've hit a cross-court winner, and Jesus has calmly hit a scorching backhand up the line. They're just left marveling at it. He carefully avoided both answers. He put the question back on the asker. Neither the people nor the Romans could be mad at such an answer. But that leads us to really the deeper meaning. And you can only know the deeper meaning if you can understand the implied question. You have to know what belongs to Caesar. And, and you also have to know what belongs to God. And if you don't know that, then it's not going to help you that much. So that's kind of the question for us. Well, what does belong to Caesar? What does belong to God? We don't have a Caesar. We have civil authorities, though. What properly belongs to their jurisdiction? Now, there is a long sidebar in political theology that we don't have time for. But ver for instance, Romans 13, one of the classic places, teach civil authorities exist by God's will and his good pleasure. Authorities exist for encouraging the good and disciplining the evil, punishing the evil. And, and, and Paul writes, therefore, authorities bear the sword, which means both for protection and also to maintain order. Paul says they collect taxes and revenues to fund their work. This is all taught pretty clearly in Romans 13. And Paul says you should, you should submit to the authorities that exist. Now, what Romans 13 doesn't answer is how much sales tax is appropriate. What about a foreign war? What about building permits? What about seatbelt laws? You know, on and on and on. This is, much of this is outside the scope of the scripture's teaching. But Paul says, oh, there are, there are things you owe to the government. It's pretty clear if you read the New Testament, Christians aren't supposed to become anarchists. Not supposed to be sinfully resistant to lawful authorities. We're not supposed to withdraw from society. There are things that belong to the government and when they are lawfully demanded of us, we ought to be cheerful and diligent citizens. But what the scriptures are even more clear about are the things that are God's. See, I think we have some decent idea of what belongs to Caesar, but we have a very, very good idea of what belongs to God. For instance, <coughs> excuse me, Psalm, verse, Psalm, not verse 50, Psalm 50, verse 10 says, every beast of the forest belongs to God. Every cattle on every hill belongs to God. All the birds, they're God's as well. Everything that moves in a field, the psalmist says, belongs to God. And then a couple of verses later, Psalm 50, verse 12, the world and all its fullness, a.k.a. everything in the world, everything of the world, the world and all its fullness belong to God. There's nothing that's not God's. That's just one psalm. There are others. But when we say, render to Caesar what is Caesar and render to God what is God's, Jesus is not drawing an equivalency between them. Caesar and God are not equal counterparts who have divvied up the world and God's share is over here and Caesar's share is over here. There is no part of the world over which Caesar can draw a line and say, God, you stay over there. This is my realm, my jurisdiction. 
This is not two children in a backseat of a car fighting for their fair share and, oh, you've crossed my line or whatever. God owns everything. It's all God's. This puts a limit on what Caesar, a.k.a. any authority, can ask of its people. If they rule unlawfully, if they, if they ask the people to sin, if they call wrong things right and right things wrong, then obedience is not to be rendered in that case. Because everything is God's, and yet, by his good will and providence, he allows authorities room to exist. And further to the point, let's think on what Jesus, on Jesus' question about the denarius. Look at verse 16 again. What question does he ask about the coin? He said, whose likeness and inscription is this? And I think we might in turn ask, well, where do we see God's likeness and God's inscription in our world? Well, the most obvious place is in people. Where, where is his likeness seen? It's in people. C.S. Lewis writes this, and I, I couldn't find the exact quote, but he says something like this, that the holiest and the most godlike thing you walk by every day is people because they are fashioned in the image of God. They resemble him. So if the denarius belongs to Caesar because it bears his image and likeness, then how much more do all of us belong to God because we bear his image and have his words written for us? See, I think we're tempted to minimize the impact of this passage, to restrict its meaning simply to pay your taxes. But I think it means far more than that. The much more difficult question is, how ought a person to live if they understand that they belong to God? How ought we to treat the natural world if we understand it is God's earth upon which we walk? How do we treat animals if we correctly perceive with the psalmist that this is God's cow or God's pigeon or God's chickadee or God's whatever? Most of us, we move through life sort of as kings and queens of our own little world. We throw the government our taxes at tax time. We throw God our tithe. But can you see that what God wants is you? You bear his image and likeness. The Pharisees and the Herodians, they're here to debate theology and taxes. There's a time and a place for such debates, but what Jesus wants is them. Even at this late hour when they've already decided, if you were here last week, they've already decided to destroy him. Jesus is still pursuing them in love, trying to help them see. Maybe just do a little thought experiment with me. What would change if when you went home today and you pull into your driveway or walk up to your front door or your apartment building or whatever, what if you said out loud, this is God's house. What if you opened your fridge, go home making lunch, getting stuff out for a sandwich or whatever, you open your fridge and say, this is God's food. What if you pulled up your bank statement this afternoon, you know, logged into your bank and said, oh, look at all this, God's money. That, that's, that's what the point Jesus is trying to make here. Jesus hits a blistering return on a tricky question and it says not only do the Pharisees and the Herodians marvel at him, but I think we're forced to kind of swallow deeply and wonder, what's it like to walk with Jesus if he's the God who owns everything? Let's talk about part two, the God of the living. The Herodians and Pharisees disappear. They're licking their wounds or whatever, or they're huddling up. You know, what's, what's our second best question that we can ask him? The Sadducees show up with a different question. Now, the Sadducees, um, they are a different sect of Judaism. They're extremely conservative, uh, essentially, what they believed was that the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, those are the only books of the Bible that had any authority. They're the books of Moses. They're, they're Moses people. So they didn't believe that the Psalms or the prophets, some of the other parts, um, maybe they were helpful, but they were not authoritative. 
Maybe think of a lawyer in Canada who's like a, a real, a constitution person, like the 1867 constitution. And they're like, e everything written since then uh, doesn't hold any weight. I'm a, I'm a constitution only person. That's sort of like the Sadducees. They're extremely conservative. Only these books um, are authoritative for us. And because they only hold to these first five books, it has led them to, uh, that, the, that they don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They claim, until Jesus tries to corrects them, it's not taught in the Torah. It's not taught in Genesis and Exodus in these books. Um, the, the later claims by the psalmist and by, by the psalmist and Isaiah and Jeremiah, you know, they don't, they don't hold a lot of weight. And further to this point, what they believed is that, it, they, what they thought is that if you believed in the resurrection, it made you politically dangerous. And here's how the argument goes. If you believe in a resurrection of the dead, if you believe in a life to come, then you lower the value of life in this world. You basically, you might do something reckless because you think I'm going to be rewarded in the life to come. Now to be fair, this theory, resurrection equals risky life, actually it's not that far off base. They weren't necessarily wrong about that. Early Christians are going to demonstrate this. They will do politically risky things because they believe in the life to come. But it makes it interesting for them, and I think this is why Mark notes it, because he says, well, they don't believe in a resurrection, but they come asking a question about the resurrection. And they pose this story about a woman who marries a man and the, and, the, and, the, and the man dies. No big deal so far. But it gets a little strange for us because it says this woman goes on to marry or at least have sexual relations with the man's brother. Now, the basic idea here is that in an ideal scenario, the line of the husband, which was extremely important to ancient Jews, the line of a husband would be preserved by the, by the woman conceiving a child with the husband's brother. Now, to us, we're like, this is really weird, feels strange, feels kind of incestuous, but basically God in his law, he, he's providing for a way for the family line to continue. And so they tell this story. This woman has a husband. They don't have any children. The first husband dies. And then she ends up either marrying or having sexual relations with all of the other brothers, seven brothers. And uh, she's uh, not able to conceive with any of them. And then, they, and then finally she dies in the end. And the Sadducees are like, who will she be married to in the resurrection? Now there's kind of three motivations for this story, three possible motivations. And the first, I think, is the most, most uh, likely. I think it's it, it, what I'm calling ridicule. It's possible that the Sadducees ask this question, tell this story, simply to mock the idea of the resurrection itself. Isn't it so silly? It's, it's kind of like the undertone of the story. Oh, a woman marrying seven brothers. Oh, and who is she going to be married to? Perhaps they're trying to, to ridicule this idea. Second possible motivation is maybe it's just a trap. Maybe they're trying to get Jesus to say something dumb, something that's going to lose him points. Maybe they even think, oh, he's going to side with us about the resurrection. That'll be a big win. So maybe they're setting up some sort of political game, some sort of political trap. And the third, and I think least, but least possible, is perhaps it's real. Maybe there was a woman. Maybe there was seven brothers. And maybe she did sort of marry all of them. Maybe some people are wondering. But the Sadducees, they don't believe in the resurrection. So they're not wondering. But maybe other people are wondering. You don't know, I suppose. So those are possible motivations. You can choose whichever one your favorite is. But either way, no matter which you choose, the clever story about a woman with seven husbands has Jesus trapped, or so they think. They've, they've hit their best serve. Jesus is back on his heels. Now verse 24 is one of those classic Jesus moments where he's not mean, but the honesty and the bluntness is piercing. He tells them, 
The reason you are wrong <laughs> is because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. Now, these Sadducees would have had the scriptures memorized. All five books of the Torah, no question. They were people of the book. They were people who knew they could recite the stories of the power of God. And Jesus tells them, these, these scripture book people, you have read the stories, but you have not perceived you have looked on them, you haven't really seen, you have listened, but you haven't really heard, you are wrong. And then Jesus tells them two things about the resurrection. Thing number one, resurrection is not resuscitation. Resurrection is not resuscitation. Look at verse 25, when people rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. Life will not be the same. Life will not simply be a resuming, the resurrection life will not be just a simple resuming of life here. Maybe you've assumed, maybe you haven't thought about it, but that assume that life with God and the new heavens and new earth will be exactly like life here. Life will not be the same. The res resurrection of the dead will not reproduce life as we know it to be. We will not be the same. But thing number two, resurrection is not resuscitation, but resurrection is transformation, or it means transformation. At the end of 25, the resurrected will be like the angels in heaven. Notice, resurrected people do not become angels. Angels are angels, people are people. But they will be like angels in the respect that angels do not marry, nor are angels given in marriage. Jesus means the resurrected life will make questions about marriage irrelevant. We will not be the same, we will be transformed. There will be a real bodily existence, recognizability in the life to come, but it will utterly be different. Now you're like, well, now I have 100 questions. Now, well, what, what exactly does that mean? I, I'm going to give you two brief illustrations that both fall short in different ways, but I think it'll help. Okay, first think of a baby in a womb. The baby has a real existence there, real life. They have this world, you know, it's kind of dark and warm and everything, uh, but, the, but they have this existence. And then there's pain, as mothers know. There's pain and difficulty, and they emerge from the womb into a new wide world face to face with the one who created them. And the world outside has some similarities to the world inside, but it's utterly different. The mother is there on both occasions, but one time around them, the second time face to face with them. Or think of different climates on our planet. Imagine you were a person who'd grown up in the Arctic, maybe part of the, the Inuit people or something like that, and you've known seasons, the seasons of the Arctic, you've known cold and thaw and ice and water, the kind of animals and plants, you know how to live there. You know your world. But imagine one day, you know, a helicopter picked you up and transported you to Hawaii, the Caribbean. Same bodily existence, but the clothes you wore, uh, they're not of much use in this new world. Your way of life will be totally different. The animals will be different. The climate will be different. Life is all new and yet also familiar. Now, both of these analogies fall short in different ways, but I'm just trying to give you the sense that Jesus is teaching the resurrection of the dead. It's not mere resuscitation of life, it's transformation of life. But not an ethereal floating existence, a real bodily existence, just a different existence. Now, I'm sure one of the pressing questions is, okay, I'm married, right? Maybe you're saying I'm married right now, or I was married. Will I know my spouse in the new heavens and new earth? What, what about that? Will I have a special relationship with them? The Bible doesn't say exactly. From what we see in the resurrected body of Jesus, which is our best 
Uh, best illustration here. There is some recognizability. The disciples, the women, they see Jesus and know him. That body he has, it still bears the marks of the crucifixion. Now, but they don't always recognize him. There's something different about him, but not utterly different. I think what we can say based on this passage and a couple others is that there is no marriage in heaven as we understand it right now. Now you're like, oh, that's kind of disappointing. Uh, what you need to also understand is that the Bible's consistent teaching is that the recreated earth, whatever it will be, it does not take pleasure from us, but multiplies it. Everywhere you look in the Bible, pleasure or heaven is offered as increasing pleasure, increasing joy, the increase of everything good. And so if in this life you're like, but, but I have a person and, I, and, and they love me and there's affection and closeness and all the things that a good marriage can provide, well, what happens when your heart's at rest? What happens when all of the angst is gone and all the sin is gone? What happens when you are face to face with God? Now, actually, in studying for this week, I realized we probably need to do a longer series on this at some point, because I'm not sure that many of us, myself included, really understand what the scriptures are saying about the new heavens and new earth. But what we can be sure of is this, that Jesus, the master of the great feast, just like he did at the wedding in Cana, he has saved the best wine for later. There are pleasures, there are joys yet to come that have not been tasted yet. And returning to our text, this is why Jesus says to the Sadducees, your question doesn't make any sense. Because it demonstrates that you don't know anything about the resurrected world. Now, to be fair, Jesus has not yet answered whether there is a resurrection at all. If the Sadducees are indeed mocking a belief in the resurrection, Jesus has yet to hit them with the reply. And so he basically says in verse 26, oh yeah, about the resurrection. Have you not read in the book of Moses? Again, great Jesus moment. It's like, oh, you guys like the book of Moses? Well, let me serve up something that's right from like your sweet spot. You know, the, the, what you say, this is the true scriptures. He just tosses it on their lap. It's like, oh, have you not read in the book of Moses about the story of the burning bush? Of course they have. They've memorized that story. It's one of the most important stories in the Old Testament. But in that story, when Moses asks God who he is, God replies, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So what Jesus is arguing here to these Sadducees is that when God says, or, that, that, or is, what Jesus is arguing is how could God say that, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, when those three men have been dead for hundreds of years when the burning bush event happens. Now, this doesn't simply mean that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive when God speaks to Moses. It does mean that. And that whatever afterlife they have now is what's called the resurrection. I think more than that, what Jesus is saying is that though these men are sort of dead to us right now, God wants to be known as their God because he will raise them in the future. The resurrection is still to come. I want to be known as the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob because that will be important later on. God is the God of the living, not the dead. See, at the burning bush, God does not say, remember me? I, I was the God of Abraham and of Isaac and Jacob. No, that's not what God says. God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And therefore, Jesus concludes to the Sadducees, this is the end of verse 27, you are quite wrong. Okay, what do we do with all this? A lot going on today. I want to tie a few of the threads together for us. In his replies, Jesus has taught, remember the first part, God owns everything, everything is to be offered back to him. 
Secondly, hey, he has taught in this, all the stuff about the resurrection that God inhabits the past, God inhabits the present, God inhabits the future. He has been making things in the past, he continues to make in the present, and one day he will remake all of the things, including people in the new heavens and new earth. Marriage, life won't be the same. What do we do with all that? On one hand, this is extremely humbling. Because lots of times life feels centered around you, centered around me. Your phone tells you, you are the center of the world, all the incoming information, all the notifications. It's just a message, just for you. Here's an offer, just for you. We designed this pizza, just for you. You know, and passage like this reset us. You're not at the center, God's at the center. He is the one making and remaking. Our lives are to be spent orienting to him. Worshiping him, living for him, and we are displaced by Jesus' replies from our favorite position, which is to be the center of our own worlds. That humbles us. And secondly, the second thing I think it does is it gives us tremendous resources to face this life. I think a lot of us feel owned by our possessions. We're weighted down with a desire for things, a chase of wealth. And the work it takes to use all the things that you have accumulated, a proper view of God changes your relationship to your stuff. It demotes stuff from uh, ruler to servant. If money, if possessions, if these things have too tight of a grip on your heart, you might want to consider how these things should change if God, not you, has the ownership papers. But also I think this second reply gives a person tremendous resources to face the end of life. As many of you are likely aware, my uncle passed away recently. His funeral was this past Friday. I had the chance to visit him about four days before he died. He couldn't talk much. Actually, the one thing he basically said was that his faith was strong. And I, and I went away from the hospital that day wondering about that statement. And it still surprises me how many Christians go down to their death in hope. It's not normal, by the way. Normally, death, dying, it creates fear creates anxiety, uncertainty. But when our hearts are, are spiritually shaken, when we lose our spiritual nerve, when death and dying and disease unsettles us, passages like this help reassure us that God will be there on the other side. Right now we see through a, gra- a glass darkly, as Paul wrote. One day you'll, you'll see right. And the same God who will raise Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob... Well, if you're a Christian, he'll raise you too. God's not interested in being the God of corpses, fools who had hope merely for this life. No, he's the God of the living. So the invitation is to know and to love this God. Just as Jesus answers the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, in hopes that they might be able to see and to hear, he offers the same to you. But I would be remiss if I did not mention a warning. It's possible to be quite wrong as Jesus told the Sadducees. It's possible to hear about God. It's possible to have mentioned or to have memorized all of the scriptures and not know the power of God. So my prayer today is that God would give you ears to hear. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you and we are grateful for your scriptures which confront us, confront us with the views and the opinions and the desires which often sneak up on us and take us by surprise. Would you change us, reorient us, displace us, help us to see you for who you are. And it's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.